it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Sleigh Bells in the Summer Breeze as another American daughter with stars in her eyes and coke on her nose succumbs to the neon sleaze of Los Angeles. It can only mean one thing, Luke, we're back in black as the Electronic Labyrinth celebrates 30 years of Lethal Weapon, 30 years of the Monster Squad and 30 years of Predator. I'm Fletcher Walton, I'm joined by Luke Littleboy, who I understand has been something of a swat. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, I... I... I did rewatch all the all four Lethal Weapons. It was an enjoyable experience. You know what's really fun? We can talk about it in a bit more detail when we come to talk about them. But obviously, you know, our our friend, our hero Shane Black, um, created the series essentially, and uh, you know, hev- heavily involved in that first script. Second script, maybe wrote the initial draft, but after that, you know, he was really stepping away from the series. And nevertheless, although that there's dramatic shifts in tone. It does feel like four parts to a story, in, in, in to, to a certain degree. And by the time I was watching number four, which is a very, very silly film, <laughs> uh, over the end credits of Why Can't We Be Friends, and you see all the cast and crew yeah. over the past ten yeah. years over the credits, I thought, you know what, that was a really good experience just re-watching those, those back-to-back. We're family! I love that bit. Exactly. Uh, it's, the it one that I, it's the one that I grew up with properly. Me too, yeah. Because of its scheduling, and as I was getting into film, it was notable for its incredibly quick turnaround time between Greenlight and Cinema was less than nine months. I think its actual turnaround was five or six months. It shows to an extent, because it's it, it has its failings, but it has to be said that by those end scenes and in the end credits, even though I was watching Lethal Weapon 4, having not had a particular affinity with the preceding three films... When I was tuning into it again and again on Sky Movies because it was on a lot because it's a it was a fifteen by then so that means you can show it from eight pm not ten pm. Yeah, so I, it, I think I discovered it the same period. I think yeah. we got Sky around that time, so I think I was just watching that quite a lot in the evenings. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and you do really feel it, and you realise that it's a a nice set of four films. Now, one thing that's notable is that Tracy Wolf, Darlene Love, and the kids playing the rest of the Murtaugh family are in all of them. So is Steve mm-hmm. Kahan, Mary Ellen Trainer as the police psychologist. To, just to keep those people together was quite unusual. We could say Police Academy, I suppose. But generally speaking, a film which begat a sequel and then a sequel you would have the central pairing and maybe a couple of cameos. But it wasn't necessary to hold together a cast of ten. Same director all the way through, Dick Donner. Shane Black involved in the first one, as you say, and then vague credits and... Uh, 
the distance over time is far, farther and farther. But Jeffrey Bohm was involved from the beginning right through to the end, I think. Jeffrey, Last Crusade, Bohm. That's yeah. right, yeah. And what was the other one he did? Um, Lost Boys. Yeah, which, he did. That's, yeah, that, that's which true. I was watching which, who, the weekend. Uh, and that makes complete sense because, of course... Um, Dick Donner was a producer on Lost Boys, I believe. Yeah. If they're they're playing it in the background of one of the scenes in the first Lethal Weapon. I what think. did I say, listeners? He did his homework. What a boffin! <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too. But you've you really have paid attention because when you said you'd watched all four of them, I thought, blimey, that must have been. Surely you were doing other things at the same time. But I'm glad to see that you did pick up on that. Yeah, I noticed that, and it was billed as this year's hit. <laughs> that's right yeah which that, it was that, we've got other vampires to talk about on this episode actually haven't we already we're jumping all over the place it feels like the photo montage at the end of lethal weapon 4 with shots from all through all four films but um, should we talk a little bit about shane black then i guess i mean he's yeah. the conduit here he's the thread i'd like to thank you very much some of the very first podcasts that we did uh were a, a retrospective on on last year's cinema and it's the films that we'd all gone to see there's a film that i had desperately wanted to see did not manage to get round to it i was probably moving house or something i seem to have done that a lot over the past 18 months or so. <laughs> and uh but, but we managed to finally get round. um i saw it on dvd and i own it on dvd now the the nice guys uh written and directed by shane black and uh, obviously starring ryan gosling and uh, russell crowe and it was through that and your your praise of it and your high recommendation that I've I've decided to revisit a lot of Shane Black's work. We covered Last Boy Scout not so long ago, didn't we, on the podcast? Maybe a few months ago, yeah. and it's been it's been an absolute delight to reacquaint myself with his work and and who he is. So I I don't know if you wanted to almost use that as a starting point and, and starting block for you know how, how you where where you sit with Shane Black really. Like you mentioned. Lethal Weapon 4 was maybe the first Lethal Weapon you'd, you'd really digested. Yeah, they were always on ITV with adverts, and sometimes the news was in the middle. A couple of years ago, I got right pissed up with my mates, which was absolutely fine. We were out at Ye Old Cheshire Cheese in the middle of London. The next day, quite remorseful, I was at work with Chris Wynn and said, uh, you know, I'd had too many. I'm sorry if I was a handful as we were going home. I know I was shouting about something. And he said, <laughs> he said no, you just kept saying how good Shane Black is. <laughs> That's my drunk talk, <laughs> saying, you don't understand, Last Boy Scout, Last Boy Scout, no, listen, Last Boy Scout. <laughs> uh, Shane Black is, let me think about my relationship with him, as I should have done for the preceding week, and I'm sure Luke has done, class valedictorian that he is, where I'm, at, you know, I'm sat at the back chewing erasers. <laughs> I'm like the naughty kid in the Monster Squad, I'm in the goddamn club, aren't I? <laughs> Leather, cigarettes. When I was getting into film, I'd heard Shane Black was some 20-something Wunderkind getting paid a million, two million a script, the most expensive screenplays of all time by the time he got to Long Kiss Goodnight. But I didn't interact with him properly until that film by Rennie Harlan made it to Sky Movies. And I had preconceived notions about him. What I've subsequently learned is that any film with a Shane Black screenplay isn't by Shane Black. Uh, they rip them to pieces, and it's it's the maddest thing. In Barton Fink, as I've mentioned before on the podcast more than once, Michael Lerner hires Barton, played by John Turturro, because he wants somebody who can give him that Barton Fink feeling, and then by the end of yeah. the film he's telling him, there's 50 writers out there who can give me that Barton Fink feeling. That's what it seems to be with Shane Black. What he wrote was so electrifying to executives that they scrabbled to bring him on board their projects, 
once on board, uh, they cast aside their 70s artistic sensibilities and realised that they would much prefer something far more commercial. Not that Shane mm. cared necessarily, as you wouldn't if you were a 32-year-old screenwriting <laughs> millionaire with three pools and eight Jaguars, Ferrari. What would be the car of the 80s? A Porsche, maybe? Yeah, potentially. So yeah, the, sure. the first a... thing to... to rem- Night Rider. Kit. Anyway. Latterly played by Val Kilmer, star of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which does count as a Shane Black film. What I'm saying about Shane Black is the first thing to remember is that when we watch a film where he's credited with the screenplay, we can cherry pick what we believe to be. It's a little bit like any co-writing credit. It's You can point and say, well, the good bits were him. You can pretend that you think, oh, all the good stuff is Shane Black and all the stuff that doesn't quite work, that's the other schmoes that came on board. But it is the case yeah. that very early the, the on... Way Josh, the, Josh, the way Josh Whedon feels about uh, Alien Resurrection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just wrote the good bits, I swear. Yeah, it's, it's a naughty way to look at things, that, but that's the way that you can look at things. But with Lethal Weapon, certainly, with Lethal Weapon, you can play Shane Black bingo. Shall we reel them off, right? Is it set at Christmas? Bing... Yes. <laughs> Has it got now? It doesn't have this to a tremendous extent, but does it have an unmemorable baddie overshadowed by his much more memorable henchman? Luke? I, I, Your I hands in the lethal... air, Luke? Yeah, yeah, I would say that lethal, that, that applies to lethal weapons. It applies to a lot of the lethal weapons, but so, the first one especially, yeah, sure. Yeah, and so uh, Mitchell Ryan from Gross Point Blank is good, but he is still overshadowed by Gary Busey's Mr. Joshua. Henchman goes last. There's a smart talking teenage daughter, as in Last Boy Scout, as in all of his films. I sh- I'm not even going to reel them off. There's always a, a clever kid. Yeah. Excellently played by Daniel Harris in Last Boy Scout. In Iron Man 3, it's Ty Simpkins from Jurassic World, isn't it? And he... that, that, is, that is accurate, yeah. And he sort of becomes the surrogate son of, of uh, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. yeah. And, and appears. Encourages it... him to be Iron Man. You know, yeah, yeah. Through, through his innocence and. Uh, and um... Earnestness and reappears at the very beginning of the Nice Guys. Uh, remind me of that scene. Is he at the beginning of Nice Guys? Is he? Yeah the the actress crashes the car right down the hill through his house. Yes, and he's been yes, admi- yes, yes. admiring her in a in a porno magazine. That brings us to another one of Black's trademarks: the doomed ingenue immersed in yeah. a world of vice. <laughs> and I I, I found that um but. This is something else about Black is that his screenplays are incredibly thorough. The swan dive that opens Lethal Weapon felt elegaic. The way that she leaves Los Angeles is the same way that she entered it. We can presume that she fell into Hollyweird in much the same way that she departs it with a just a, a plunge into the darkness. And then the other trademarks, uh, partners, if he can have uh, one Caucasian and one African American, he's down with that. They'll usually have conflicting personalities as well and then most often most often one of his protagonists is emotionally scarred suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder a borderline suicidal mad bad and dangerous to know and i think gibson's excellent at portraying that in this one he lurches between comedy and the absurd to to complete insanity very quickly nowhere's that better seen possibly than the uh uh, the the the, uh, the iconic scene in Lethal Weapon where he he jumps off the building with the uh, the guy trying to commit suicide yeah. uh, and just uh, decides to um, instead of talking him down using 
words and reason and uh, <laughs> massaging his ego, he just says, yeah, you might as well jump or whatever. Let's just do it together and, and handcuffs himself to the guy and then they jump off together, um, which is which is fantastic. But um, yeah, that, that first movie, when I was re-watching the four as well, it's it's an obvious point to make. It's the darker one. And we do have Mel Gibson, you know, at one point putting a gun in his mouth and, and to his head, you know, trying to um, pluck up the courage to, to end his own life due mm. to the the loss of his, his wife, you know, prior to the events of the film. By Lethal Weapon 3, we have Mel Gibson on all fours pretending to be a dog. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, a, it's a different, very different shift in tone. When you watch them back to back, it's incredibly noticeable. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about this too. Shane Black writes in a very specific way. It's not easy to replicate. Simplest way to reheat that approach is bickering. So on the first one, it doesn't seem as improvised as the later episodes because more recently I've seen two and three. Uh, I've caught 20 minutes here and there on Sky Movies and I've been appalled by how much shouting there is. Uh, 80s style shouting. um, I think four is even worse. Bickering. Yeah, go go ahead. There's um, definitely a lot of improv. Yeah, uh, and... It's not Especially skilled. when Joe Pesci's in there as well. Yeah, there's um, there's no wit to it. Some of Pesci's stuff is all right, but in in a way, it's doubling down on that formula. But in the first one, so for instance, there's a quip: "God hates me, hate him back." It works for me. That's a decent back and forth. As the series progresses, it very quickly degenerates into sludgy, boring, high-pitched uh, banter that yeah. I don't have any taste for. But early on, it's decent. Early on, it's decent. And uh, another kind of classic Shane Black joke. One of the other detectives speaks with Danny Glover and says how he's a a new man. He's an 80s man, a sensitive man. He says he was crying in bed. Were you alone? And he says, yeah, why do you think I was crying? Yeah. Now, it's a hack joke, but it's pulled off nicely. And there's a bit of that in the Monster Squad as well between Stan Stan Shaw and the dad, whose name I can't remember. Uh, Stephen Macht, I think it might be. Monster Squad, I don't know how much you want to dart around, but that was a complete pleasure. I, I had not seen it before. Heard about it only fleetingly, and to make the concerted effort to sit down and watch it w- was a real joy, because I kind of felt like, where had Monster Squad been all my life? How have I got through... I'm 30 years old this year, Fletch. How have I got through this many Halloweens without sitting down watching Monster Squad? As you know, Halloween's one of my favourite holidays... Oh, yeah. Of, yeah, of course it is. ...of, of, the, of the year, which I, I a lot of people laugh at me about about that i like i think one of the reasons i enjoy halloween so much is because you don't have to do anything you can you can get as involved or 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 not as you choose you're right you can turn up can't you you can you can turn up or or you can stay home if you want it's fine you don't have to go see family you're not obligated to do certain things or you can throw yourself in wholeheartedly into the experience and i think a lot of it appeals as well to my more b-movie sensibilities and Monster Squad certainly delivers on, on that in spades. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, the premise is essentially that the, the universal monsters of Dracula, Wolfman, the Mummy, uh, Frankenstein's monster, and Creature from the Black Lagoon uh, are in present-day 80s suburban America, uh, and it's up to a, a, a bunch of kids to, to, to stop them. Uh, what a fantastic film that is so yeah i don't want to dart around too much but no, i think but, we should an... we've begun darting let's pleasure. do it like we should move in this podcast as they move through traffic in lethal weapon 
four. Don't, because that's going to make me really want to uh, now talk about the, the the chase, the car chase in *Lethal Weapon* four, which is really fun. Yeah. And I remember as a, I, I I remember as a kid watching that and watching Mel Gibson ride on the back of the table that had fallen off the lorry. Yeah. And I just thought, yeah, that's that's really fun. It's not a mobile home, is it? It's more like a prefab house on the back of a trailer. Some terrific action in those. Let, yeah, let's start around. Let's just move back and forth. I say So we said a little bit about the Monster Squad. Let's move right back to the Lethal Weapon, the series, and especially the first one, hit a sweet spot in action cinema. They're a couple of years into action cinema as a big-budget blockbuster tentpole potential a time when it was presumed that these particular pictures could be the money earners for the year, which Mm. started, as we've talked about, started with Star Wars, of course, but certainly by the early 80s and definitely by the mid-80s, Beverly Hills Cop, Cobra, Mm. Lethal Weapon. You knew that you could have a 15 or 18 rated film, or in the States, I suppose, it would be an R-rated action film that would make a shit ton of money. However, Lethal Weapon and the series at large falls just a few years before the infiltration of CG, which began with The Abyss, but then more specifically in action cinema with with Terminator 2. Mm -hmm. And then by the time of Men in Black, Starship Troopers, Lost in Space, its proliferation is ruinous to the concept almost. Mm. And then into this century, it's the difference between a fire, uh, a real fireball and a CG fireball. On set in 80s action pictures, that was real fire. Then later it was more likely to be miniatures, and then it was completely computer generated. But Lethal Weapon is still at a point where a helicopter launches an attack at a funeral. That chopper is right by the house. That astonished me. In the first Lethal Weapon, about an hour in, around the time that Tom Atkins' character gets shot, Man, that chopper is is right by that house is the best way to say it. And it's alarming. Yeah. It isn't a miniature. It isn't computer generated. You realise, dang, this is the age of the stuntman. And Dar Robinson, the great Dar Robinson, worked on the film and the film is dedicated to his memory. Uh, expert in jumps, pioneered the use of certain wires in full stunts. And I was going to say earlier that the, the one you mentioned, jumping with the suicide, uh, that's the kind of thing that we saw when we were 10 years old. And you never forget it. It's the talk of playgrounds across the land. Little vignettes like that. Now, I remember as a kid acting out Axel Foley in Beverly Hills Cop at the very beginning in the cigarette truck, jumping around, holding on to the chains as he's thrown from side to side in the back of the articulated (laughs) lorry, the container lorry. And it's the same with Lethal Weapon. Everybody would be saying, did you, what's that film? Yeah, you know the film. And he doesn't realise he's going to do it. And then he handcuffs him and they have to jump together. It's mental. (laughs) <laughs> and the opening jump is superb as well uh, the camera stays on it all of the way down expertly executed and uh, I think I'm going to make a lot of broad statements and generalisations in this in this episode in particular I think but there's a growing appetite for real world stunts there is yeah I'd agree with that there's a real um, pull back it seems in some way and practical mm. effects people are talking about it more and more now than ever before and I think people are sussing out as well that CG if anything makes it easier to do practical effects because you can do a lot of stuff on camera in camera and then paint out certain elements that you don't want to appear there mm. so you know whether it's whether it's your puppeteer or your wires or whatever it is, you know, you can actually do more in camera and then just paint out the bits that you don't want or, or enhance the bits that you do. Yeah, exactly. So, enhance and embellish. It's meant to 
support and facilitate rather than take place of. Mm-hmm. What did you think about the stunts? They get more and more insane by each movie. I think when compared to a lot of the action films, funny thing about the Lethal Weapon, especially the first couple, especially the first one, compared to a lot of those other action 80s action films, it's slightly more tame. The first one doesn't even have a real car chase. It's got the bit in the desert with his daughter. And it is cool, like the helicopter chasing the, the limousine. But it doesn't have a proper big car chase. Uh, that, that, that I could really think of and I, I think where Lethal Weapon scores, maybe this is the Shane Black coming through, I don't know, it's in the relationships between the characters, yeah. it really is in the buddy cop relationship yeah. it, you, you really buy into Glover and, and Gibson, now look you may slap me around the face for this saying this, but I'm not a huge Danny Glover fan. No, I don't think he's particularly I charismatic. I don't think he's. You could you could say wooden. I don't know. He kind of has that whispering thing that he does, where he kind of talks as if he's muttly or something. He's he's always about to run out of breath. Like maybe that's just what he's trying to Little try boy, and play. Stop right there. We are in Cora. I have so many problems with his performances in the Lethal Weapon films. Number one. Almost every line he delivers seems like it's done in loop after the fact. Yeah. I don't know why that is. He's dubbing. He's essentially every, dubbing every line himself. Always seems like he's forgotten it as yeah. well. Like uh, it's like he's staring down at the ground as he delivers his punchline. Trying to re- did I remember that yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> every time I watch Lethal Weapon, I sit there wondering: Is Danny Glover good? I don't know. He's fine in Royal Tenenbaums. Bat Twenty One is all right. I don't like but his style it at all. I, I would, it's the I, relationship, it works. So somehow yeah, it works. On yeah. some level, the two of them together, you, you, you buy it. Maybe it's because he's supposed to be the everyman. Mel Gibson is Mr. Charismatic Hollywood, mm. and, and we can dig that. But one of the things that I love about Glover's character is that he is the audience's way in, right? He, he, the surrogate, the, yeah. Yeah, he's the family man. He's the guy in the house with uh, the family he's the guy saying he's getting too old for it he's and he he's witness to mel gibson's insanity yeah uh you know he 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 knows that this guy apparently is unhinged and is likely is you know suicidal the psychologist is telling him that so we are danny clover to an extent so, so may, maybe that's why that's okay that he's not as charismatic it just about works so in a lot of the later years like like you're saying, when there's a lot of the improv is there, and, and they're sh- <laughs> when you by the time you've got Glover, Gibson, and Pesci in in a car doing their improv and shouting over one another, Glover's kind of saying a lot of one-liners that that sound decent and and normally would land, but he 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 can't yell as loud as the other guys. I can't actually <laughs> hear what he's even saying. But nevertheless, in that first movie especially, I think he is your route in. He's he's the conduit for the audience, and he works. And uh, you, you you buy the two of them together. And it's an obvious arc. You know, at the beginning of the movie, they don't like each other. Spoiler alert, by the end, they <laughs> do. They're really, they're really, really good friends. Uh, somehow it, it works. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think Danny Glover's... I mean, Mel, Mel Gibson, obviously, off the back of Luther Weapon, you know, did have a very fruitful Hollywood uh, career um, for, I suppose, the, the, the next 10 years. And, and Glover, like you say, I, I do struggle to, to necessarily name too much more he was doing um, uh, after that, you know, apart from maybe the, the, the half dozen ones that you came up with. But cer- certainly I think the relationships are there. So um, I suppose to conclude my point, as, as I kicked off as well, I think Lethal Weapon, especially that first one, compared to other, compared to its contemporaries, compared to its brothers in that decade, wasn't necessarily the biggest action film, but somehow I think the characters 
worked fantastically well, mm. and that's why that is that that is why it 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 worked the way it did, took off the way it did, and and why people took it to heart. You know, it, it's as a result of that as well. It's endlessly rewatchable, and um, you know, this is don't forget, of course, we're going into the the age of you know video rentals and that kind of thing, which yeah. is where it probably scored really well as too, and then it's why you then begin to get the sequels, and um. I tell you what, they then make up for it. I think I think they knew exactly what they had to do with the second one, because did I just I just as I just said, there's no real car chase in that first movie, mm. apart from the bit in the desert. That second movie, you hear the soundtrack kicks in, it's black, and then you you sort of iris in with the logo, and boom, you're right in the middle of a car chase. Yeah, with with, uh, with, with yeah. the sirens going and them yelling and. And that works phenomenally well. So it's a great opening scene. I think they make up for that. That second movie, they kind of make up for it in in spades. They go they go bigger and better in in as all good AE sequels should. <laughs> and then mm. it, it works. It works. Yeah, yeah. Something about rewatching the first one, I realised how essentially naturalistic it is in its performances, in its dialogue. The improvisations do feel realistic they're not necessarily entertaining and I think there's a a shaky understanding of how to best communicate Shane Black's prose, how to accentuate what he's good at. But what Donna does achieve is something real. Well, I know that they improvise the scene, or at least embellish, uh, after the the one we keep talking about, with the big stunt jump uh, when he rescues the guy off the, off the, off the building. And yeah. then um, Danny Glover sort of almost you know grabs mel by by the scruff of his neck and says look in here we need to talk about this are you really suicidal yeah you want to kill yourself oh for christ shut up yes or no you want to die yes or no i got the job done what the hell do you want to answer the question oh what do you want to hear man do you want to hear that sometimes i think about eating a bullet well i do i do i even got a special one for the occasion with a hollow point look make sure it blows the back of my goddamn head out do the job right Every single day I wake up and I think of a reason not to do it every single day. And you know why I don't do it? This is going to make you laugh. You know why I don't do it? The job. Doing the job. Now, that's the reason. You want to die? I don't. I'm not afraid of it. I ain't afraid of it. Take my gun. Don't nibble on the barrel. Pull the trigger. Go ahead, pal. Be my guest. Go ahead if you're serious. You shouldn't tempt me, man. Put it in your mouth. Bullet might go through your your ear and not kill you. Yeah, under the chin. Yeah, 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 under the chin. He has it out with him. Like I need to know. We're partners now, and I need to know if you're genuinely suicidal. Um, th- I think a lot of that is improvised, and I think that's when Mel starts to say, from, from what I was reading and and, and um, listening to, that sounds certainly that 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 stuff was improvised, and that's more real than, you know, maybe maybe just what they were playing for laughs in late later entries. Yeah, the dinner table scenes. Uh, yeah, that's a good example. The dinner table scenes. 
when Riggs goes round for the first time and sits with them, on one hand, it's nothing of any consequences being said. There's very little substance of limited engagement and maybe kind of boring. But if you look at that in a positive way, it's very realistic because real life is kind of dull. Do you see? Yeah. Do you see where I'm approaching it from? I was really surprised by that. It utterly, it felt like a camera had been set up and was recording a conversation around a family dinner table where nothing of much consequence happened, mm. and that felt engaging. Lots of relatively tight close-ups on each of the characters, and then even um, the action is shot in in ways that I found interesting and easy to engage with as a viewer looking for entertainment, but also as an, uh, an appreciator, as also as a cineast. But there's a couple of exceptions. That stuff in the desert was... It went on forever. In the desert, in the hostage swap, the preamble, the establishing shots go on for about a minute and a half. And I wanted to get my phone and actually time it so I could be certain for the podcast. But it goes on and on. Pay for a helicopter, though, to, to sh- shoot some wonderful yeah. establishing shots of the desert... You want him in the movie. <laughs> That's what it felt like, because uh, it it felt like that. Glover rides up, Mel Gibson leaps from the vehicle, does a combat roll or some shit, and then he, with the sniper rifle, moves to a, a decent vantage point to take out the baddies later. Okay, that's cool. Baddies arrive. But it becomes, for a very brief period, it's as though Richard Donner said, I'm in a desert, I want to shoot Lawrence of Arabia. Omar Sharif in the distance for five minutes. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That you do get that, don't you? Yeah. It's quite. It is quite stunning, though, when uh, when Glover's standing there, and then you get the the vehicles, the vehicles on the horizon through the blur of the heat and and that kind of thing. Yeah. But, uh... It's stunning for the first ten fifteen seconds. Then I began to wonder. <laughs> not this film is in need of an editor, but literally, was Stuart Baird asleep at the switch when they were editing this? There's some good stuff that was cut out of the film. When we were first getting into DVDs at the end of the century, Robbie Cornforth got all of the Lethal Weapon pictures. There's an excised scene where Riggs confronts a school shooter. Yes, in fact, that's even in my cut. Right, right. So I've, yeah. I've got pretty the boss. director's... Yeah, it's really fantastic. I've got, I've got director's cut of that Lethal Weapon. And you know what? That says so much about his character. There's this, there's this guy shooting up a school and uh, everyone's pinned... All the police are pinned down. And then... Riggs just goes in and thinks, "Ah, oh, sod it! I can. I'm just going to wing it." Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and just and just like walks into the playground, uh, shouts at the guy to kind of get him to reveal himself for a moment. So as as bullets are flying off around him, he just keeps shooting, and eventually gets the guy. One psycho son of a bitch, but you're good. But that, that said so much about his character, where he was suicidal. He he obviously thought if a bullet goes in me, that's fine. I've gone down, trying to help out. Yeah. Uh, and and it said so much about his character. It was a really good way to introduce him. Uh, there's also that's in the director's cuts. So that's actually in the copy that I've got. But yeah, there are some deleted scenes as well. So originally, this is must have been a Shane Black written scene. He was originally introduced. Riggs, the character, was originally introduced in a bar, and he gets involved in a barroom brawl. He's, he's sipping on a bottle of Jack Daniels. Uh, <laughs> and then these these guys start on him. He takes them out. Or he sort of says, look, you should probably back off. Uh, just speak to the barman. I'm, you don't want to mess with me sort of thing. He takes all these guys out. And um, <laughs> the barman says, look, Riggs, just get out of here. Take the bottle. 
then come back. Yeah, you're always <laughs> causing fights, that kind of thing. It was a very dark and gritty way to um, introduce the character. And, of course, what they opt for is on the beach, getting out of bed in the morning, um, just starting with a beer. Yeah, starkers. With, yeah, with start, start, This guy's starkers. on the edge. He doesn't even wear underwear. No pyjamas, <laughs> nothing. He's left his door open and he just lives on the beach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Old chap just blowing in the wind. A decent introduction, I suppose. Um, a little that... bit similar to the Bruce Willis introduction in um, Last Boy Scout uh, when he, when he's asleep in the car and the guys <laughs> put put roadkill on his chest. That's the starting point of so many Shane Black films is rock bottom. His characters yeah. begin at rock bottom. Uh, they're so hard boiled in nature, and these blackisms keep seeping through into the film at large. I adore it. I adore his protagonists. All of them defiantly masculine, but mm-hmm. so broken by experience and uh, in many ways refuse and surplus. They just want one chance at redemption, I suppose. I tried to pick up on one of the themes. I haven't thought about this very much, but see what you think of it. Uh, the first shot is the swan dive from the tower block. Uh, in that shot, we're propelled into a Los Angeles of vice, drugs, prostitution, shattered dreams pornography kind of hollywood hopes dashed and Mm -hmm. then immediately roger murtagh's in the bathtub we're in a world of picket fences suburbia safe family what i saw in the film was that murtagh is petrified that the job and the 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 vice of hollywood is seeping into his safe picket fence environment that's what i saw and it's it's well exemplified about an hour into the film when he watches a videotape that's been sent to him, I couldn't even pick up by who, whether it was the baddies or whether it was his own police department. And it's uh, some kind of beach blanket bingo titty movie with mm. the girl who killed herself. And he watches mm. that. And the the the, uh, the composition of the frame, as Donna pulls out, really suggests evil, the rot, the corruption, is now firmly entrenched in suburban life. Um, and uh, he's he's terrified of it. I think that's I think that's part of the film, and I attribute that to Shane Black. Very good at finding um, all of his films are about a deep-seated corruption and a couple of broken heroes who have to fight that system. Um, very much aware that the odds are overwhelming and there's so little chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard-boiled pulp fiction. Yeah, and yeah. With, with with a lowercase p, lowercase f, and. Uh, yeah, you're right with um, the Glover character. It's a really interesting reading of the film. It just occurred to me, of course, that the big, th- the main thrust of the third act is that his own eldest daughter, yeah. vulnerable, virgin-like, you know, is then is then kidnapped and and completely at risk in in behind enemy lines with with the bad guys, and Piss. he has to go save her. So yeah, you're complete. It's a really interesting reading of the film. And it's good that I can, having only watched it once this year, so if, if we say, like, my first rewatch in a hell of a long time, and to be able to pick it up like that, without looking too hard either. Um, in the film, Danny Glover is like Bill Cosby with a gun, in many ways. He's a family man. Yeah, and he's getting too old for this shit, so yeah. he's, he, he's completely out of time, a man out of time, you know? He, yeah. he, he's part of the old, you know, he's not a young man anymore. In fact, yeah, that's what that cop says to him before he ha- makes his quip about crying in bed alone. He talks, yeah, he says that Roger's Oh, outdated. an 80s man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of, and again, this is when I, I am prone to 
cherry picking and deciding that all the good bits are automatically Shane Black because I'm in love with <laughs> Shane and I have a picture of him on my wall literally downstairs by the television. Bang. The police psychologist is a nice addition. Mary Ellen Trainer playing a role which isn't too far from the little satirical pieces she has in Die Hard. Mm-hmm. I think audiences might forget that Die Hard has a little bit to say about the media using William Atherton Certainly does, from yeah. Ghostbusters in you know as a, a cynical careerist journalist. The Lethal Weapon series drops her in for a couple of scenes in each film. It becomes increasingly comedic, but in the first one, it's novel and representative of its times that there is a police psychiatrist discussing that with the old-school captain, and then in order to ignore her... He literally walks into the men's room. Yeah. You don't need to deconstruct that one, do you? That's pretty obvious. And she says, what an arsehole. Yeah, it yeah, would, yeah. would then be good if you heard a kind of... <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose that would be Police Academy. That, would be, that is more, more Police Academy. <laughs> There's a few little bits like that. Um, listeners, do get in touch with what you've seen buried throughout the Lethal Weapon series. Febrile tidbits, which speak to its period and a greater whole and just, you know, gender roles and coding because one thing that's very present, Richard Donner is well known as one of the great Hollywood liberals. I even made a little checklist here. Of oh, all- God, it's throughout all four. There's the dolphin and the tuna. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, that's what it was. I was trying to remember if it was vegetarianism. Yes, um, dolphin-friendly tuna because that was the issue of the day. Well Certainly done, was. I've forgotten, yeah. I think that's the second movie. That they they that that Glover's trying to have a sandwich and his he says oh it's tuna fish sandwich and his family say no 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 the the dolphins get caught in the nets yeah. you can't have a and he just what I can't have a tuna sandwich like he's really really can't believe it but and then the main thrust of the second film of course is uh, the, the South African bad guys and apartheid and yeah which is the, noticeable commendable it can't be ignored. And there's the anti-apartheid sticker on the fridge in the first one and presumably in the others as well. There's a conversation between Riggs and Murtar and Murtar's daughter about pot versus alcohol. Yes, there which is. is yeah. One can't be taxed, so yeah. that's why you should, can't have it. Yeah, which is pretty progressive. There's also a little bit of anti-smoking from Roger Murtar. This is very much California 1987. It really does speak to its times. I didn't Kids really with like... Guns is the third one, isn't it? That's, that's, that's a, a yeah. very... There's definitely an anti-gun message in the third one, despite being a film about violence and guns, and it's even called Lethal Weapon. But yeah, I think the third yeah, one yeah. is 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 kids on the street with guns and yeah. definitely an anti-gun. Yeah. Uh, in fact, at the funeral of the kid who, um, who Glover shoots, uh, they the pa- the parents, uh, sort of go up to him and say, um, you know, they refuse to speak to him because obviously he's responsible for the death of their son who is a, a street tough with a gun. Hmm. And they say, um, I can't remember the exact line, but they say, you know, if you want to talk to us kind of thing or, or come back when you've got the guy that put the gun in our kid's hand. Yeah. So it's not, oh, maybe society uh, led this guy down the wrong path, our son down the wrong path. But certainly, certainly stopped the guy who put the gun in his hand in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there, there we go. That theme is mentioned in the first one as well. There's a... a in addition to the desert scene, another scene I really disliked was Murtar coaxing information out of the child on the fire truck. Now, number one, the kid is wearing a Keith Haring shirt, famous New York artist, died of AIDS. His style was very popular in the 80s, but I still feel as though the costumers had a hand and Donna had a hand in putting the T-shirt on that kid. But also one of the kids says, Mama says policemen shoot black people. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and this is Los Angeles a couple of years before the riots. It's a powder keg. Yeah. And it's that's the environment again. We, yeah, it's set we, to burst. We, yeah. I, I did. I did think we have I to consider it that. in context. We must consider it in context, yeah. and uh, just as much as we've talked about the New York of after hours, uh, pre Giuliani, pre cleanup, being a really dangerous place to live. It's the same with Lethal Weapon. This was a, a particular time and place during the second Reagan administration, moving into the first Bush term where mm-hmm. crime was on the agenda constantly. So I don't know what more we have to say about Lethal Weapon at this point. Its release was the 28th of August, preceded just by a couple of weeks by The Monster Squad, which was the second filmed Shane Black screenplay, but apparently the first released in cinemas. He did have something called Shadow Company about undead Green Berets coming back from Vietnam resurrected, and that's why... In Lethal Weapon, Gary Boosie's unit is called the Shadow Company. 14th of August, Monster Squad, 28th, Lethal Weapon. Predator was a couple of months before. And all of those are celebrating their 30th anniversaries. And Lethal Weapon 3 is on its 25th anniversary. That opened on the 14th of August. Which one should we move on to? Should we go for... Do we need more Lethal Weapon? Uh, no, the only other thing I had to say about Lethal Weapon is things that, you know, Shane Black's not connected to... By the second one, he did the story. Uh, they rejected the draft for being too dark. I know that at one point it was going to end with Mel Gibson, Mel Gibson's character dying, and uh, <laughs> I think I think they actually shot two endings uh, to 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 accommodate that, and they obviously yeah. decided to go for the one where he lives, which is um, which is fair enough. But uh, it would have been interesting to see what had happened and I, I think the Shane Black from my understanding the Shane Black version of Lethal Weapon 2 ended with Mel Gibson's character dying having sacrificed himself for Danny Glover's family because he accepted that 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 his friend had a family had something to live for and he didn't yeah uh, of course by the but, yeah. but I, I'm, I'm under the impression that Rene Russo exactly and I'm under the impression that this, the second film really that the only Shane Black stuff left in there is he, he still has a story by credit but in terms yeah. of set set pieces and scenes, I think there's the, the house with stilts that they obviously take out. That's yeah. that's straight out of Shane the Shane Black script. But the but Jeffrey uh, Jeffrey Bohm um, punched it up pretty pretty quickly and uh, rewrote that. And then of course by the third one it was it was just Bohm all the way. Um, and uh, I think the fourth one has just so many writers all over it. Um, yeah. So I think even the first Bohm script for the fourth one was was thrown out and rejected, and um, they certainly are. Yeah, there's a fan theory for the four Tim Burton uh, and Schumacher Batman films that which has I think cracked uh, one of our favorite websites. Fletch has written an article about it in the past where the first two Burton films with Batman in the two Michael Keaton ones, that's the actual story of, of what happened. Mm. And then and then the Schumacher ones, which are obviously far more camp and silly, um, it explains the fact that Harvey Dent is now played by a different actor. Of course, it started off in the franchise with um, Billy D. Williams and then switched along to Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, and they explain that, as well as the shift in tone, as a result of the fact that this, the second two Batman films are actually... Because um, he reveals his identity at the end of Batman Returns to, to Catwoman and Selina Kyle. So yeah. it's assumed that maybe he threw down his cowl but by the end of the second film. 
he's no longer Batman, and he came clean, and then they made films about his exploits. Right, and right, that is yeah. Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Yeah. It's a silly fan theory, but it it's fun enough, and it does feel a little bit like uh, Lethal Weapon 1 and 2 maybe actually <laughs> happened, and Lethal Weapon 3 and 4 are films about those characters. Yeah. Uh, because... They do. They do play up to their reputation, you know, within the police force. I can't remember. It's when they're punched down to. I think it's the fourth one actually, and and they're just they 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 get demoted to be uniformed cops for a bit. That's the third and, one, I think. Oh, is I it the third the one? The right. Third. They blow up the building twice. Yeah, you're right. They do. It's a cat. You're right. Yeah, and as Steve Cahan is their immediate superior, kind of despairing. You know, McBain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it does feel like the third and the fourth are uh, a much, much, much sillier. Like I say, third one, Mel Gibson uh, manages to uh, prote- uh, um, subdue a dog, guard dog, by just pretending to be a dog. Yeah. And and then uh, and then he and then he adopts the dog. So <laughs> there you go. And this is this is what we're talking about. The difference between something generated by Shane Black and something uh, revisited by people who have seen something by Shane Black uh, is like the difference between music written by Kurt Cobain and music written by people who liked Nirvana. Um, you can imagine that the screenwriters in the third and fourth, if they gave one-tenth of a shit about it anyway, uh, Shane Black might say, what have, you, what have you done with my character here? And they'd say, well, he's mad, isn't he? Yeah, he's depressed because his wife died. Um, it's driven him into insanity. You re- you recognise he's not a lunatic, though. He's not Jim Carrey. Yeah, but he's nutty and he's mad. He's crazy. I'm gonna go and do my other stuff. And this is the thing: Shane Black just left Hollywood for a period, and that's one of the most one of the most pronounced things about my experience and enjoyment of Shane Black was that by the time I was properly aware of him and got into him, long kiss goodnight, he just split and he didn't return until kiss kiss bang bang. So. Which is what ten years later, um, almost maybe yeah, less. Almost, yeah. I think Kiss Kiss yeah. Bang Bang was two thousand five. Uh, Long Kiss Goodnight was ninety six. He essentially took an, a sabbatical of seven or eight years. Um, I think he'd blown up too soon. He was still a young man. He generated a lot of jealousy towards him. He was also minted, so he didn't need to work. And it was clear that, and, and this is one of the. Some of the jealousy. What? What's the? What is that? Just a general rumor around the industry at the it's time. It's my or? understanding. There's there's nothing to say that he was difficult to work with, and his resurg- his return, resurgence, continued success suggests that there's so much warmth for him. Um, Joel Silver has always backed him from the very beginning, uh, to the extent that he put him in Predator as an actor. Mm. Um, they brought him, uh, as you can imagine, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but. When a screenwriter like John Sales, for instance, is cast in a bit part in a film, it's because they will be working on the script behind the scenes and it's useful to have them on set. Screenwriters are generally kept off set as far as possible by producers who don't want their interference. But if you cast them as a day player or give them a bit part, it's an excuse to keep them around for two or three weeks and they can rewrite as they go. Shane Black said, no, I'm an actor. (laughs) And so he took the part in Predator to be an actor and he's done a few bit parts um, around the same time but uh, yeah my understanding is that J- Shane Black has no reputation as difficult or awkward or I- in any way but I think that very quickly it was asked how he could be paid so much money 
and one of the uh, something I can't quite feature about his career is again and again he was paid boatloads of cash and they didn't even use his scripts properly no. Long, Long Kiss Goodnight is one of the best uses of what he's actually written down and delivered to them and said here's my screenplay this is a film it will last a hundred minutes have actors say this dialogue and then it will be a good film but before that uh, it was decimated at every turn he seemed quite content to do that but I wonder whether by the end of the 90s he'd realised I've got a lot of cash they're not yet ready to let me direct they won't shoot what I write I need greater authorial control and look where it got him when he came back with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang he brought Robert Downey with him showed a lot of character to pick him out and demand Val Kilmer and Robert Downey Robert Downey repaid the favour with Iron Man 3 which we probably most people don't even think about as a Shane Black film because those Marvel films we talk about how they're meant to have individual identities but in practice I don't think that permeates so for instance is it Alan Taylor who directed Thor yeah and and, and so many of the films just feel it feels like a TV show really yeah and he's from he's from he made his bones in Game of Thrones the Russo brothers worked on Arrested Development for instance now they did do Welcome to Collinwood as well but um what I'm saying is that of all of those Marvel pictures, I think it's Shane Black who has the greatest artistic vision, the greatest authorial presence, and we overlook it at our peril, I suppose. I'll, I'll end this segment, and then we'll move on to the Monster Squad, but I'll end this segment with a line in Lethal Weapon which crystallises Shane Black's writing. There's no more heroes left. That's what he says in all of his films, and that's the kind mm. of attitude that I was trying to explain earlier. A baddie will make that statement and there will be a couple of broken down, ruined anti-heroes that will say, you didn't bank on us, buddy, you know. And all of his films seem to... You made me think about how much he's like Harrison Ford. I like to imagine him rolling up to the Star Wars set day one saying, cool, right, George, he's going to die in this one, right? What, we haven't even... (laughs) No, listen, he's going to... Every time he comes to set, right, he's going to die. And it's the same with Shane Black. I want the hero to die in this one. I want the hero to die in this one. Let the hero die in this one. I don't think he's yet been able to pull it off. No, he's he obsessed hasn't. with it. I mean, in the same way that Harrison Ford was. I can't wait to kill him. It's that monster squad from Revenge of the Nerds. Big trouble, little Chinese burns turn. Pretty boys, pinker than nerds, ring wound. I think they need to vacate with the Chris Rhodes. No retreat, no surrender. Or vice versa, Tootsie, question your gender. Right, so, Monster Squad. I had a similar reaction to you. I thought, ah, oh, I wish I'd seen this 25 years ago. It would be my favourite film. If I had seen Monster Squad as a kid, I swear this would have been my favourite. Halloween's one of my favourite times of the year. Yeah. And it's one of my favourite holidays. And I think the reason for that is because you can get as involved or, or, or as not involved as you choose to. Christmas, you've got to turn up to people's houses. You've got to get, There's a social obligation to go see people. Halloween, if you want, you can ignore the damn thing. Or you can put on funny masks, get chocolate in, have people turn up for trick-or-treat, have a party, go out drinking, do whatever the hell you want. Just put on some old films. I've got to say that Monster Squad is probably going to be a Halloween staple for me in the years to come. And I'm so glad that you you, you brought it to my attention uh, in our Shane Black season, as it were, Fletch, yeah. uh, this week, so I could, I could re-watch it. You know who to call when you have ghosts. 
But who do you call when you have monsters? We're the Monster Squad. What's a squad? It's like my own advice, I think. They're young and inexperienced. Naughty virgin! They're a bit disorganized. Monsters are not real. We don't know that, sir. 2,000-year-old dead guys do not get up and walk away by themselves! But when strange things start happening in town... There's a monster in my closet. Ooh! Look at that big, scary monster! What's happening? Do I have a werewolf? Silver bullet? They're the only ones ready to do battle. Somebody's out there is killing people! You know, the premise for anyone who isn't aware, and I urge you to go and check this film out immediately, is the universal monsters are on the loose in present day slash 80s America, contemporary America for the time. You've got Dracula as the ringleader. You've got you've got Wolfman. You've got Creature from the Black Lagoon. You've got Mummy. You've got Frankenstein's monster. The only people that can stop them is a gang of 80s kids all made up of stereotypes, but in a knowing, you know, such a knowing way, this script knows exactly what it is and what it's doing. Uh, so thank you so much for introducing me to the Monster Squad, Fletch. And yeah, I wish I had seen it 20 years earlier. I had the exact same reaction. It's comparable to Goonies and yeah, Adventures definitely. in Babysitting. This is the first work by Black and Decker. Shane Black used to write with Fred Decker. Uh, Fred wrote Robocop 2, in which Shane Black cameoed. He also wrote Night of the Creeps, and very early on in their career, Black and Decker wrote together. They are writing and directing The Predator, which is a Predator reboot, which I presume will actually be bloody good. Who better... Now, you know what I was about to say? I was about to say, who better to revisit the 80s than the man that created it? And yet, we've seen (laughs) the Farrago that resulted when Ridley Scott decided he wanted to make Alien films again. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see. They, yeah. I mean, Jesus, these Predator films can't get much worse, so this must be a step up. I remember not minding Predators, if you recall yeah. that attempt at a reboot. Rodriguez, yeah, yeah, With, that's um, it. Nimrod Antal. Which was a sort of soft reboot of the first one, very similar premise. The thing about Monster Squad is I watched it ten days ago. I watched Lethal Weapon last night, and so it's Lethal Weapon that's more in my mind and also mm. that um the Shane Black sensibility is slightly filtered through having a writing partner although that's the case with Nice Guys as well and I think I think it works there but there was so much to enjoy with Monster Squad and how it's rough around the edges scene, uh, scenes don't flow as well as they should do it's clearly the the work of a couple of ambitious young bucks who have no hope of getting everything that they imagine to the screen Here's an example. Black and Decker wanted it to begin with a Zeppelin attack on Dracula's castle. Yeah, exactly. Completely outlandish. Even today, I don't know. Um, And there's... The Monster Squad is chugging along nicely. And then there's a wipe cut to an airplane featuring David Provel and another actor I don't know. Almost (laughs) do it. And and that's when you realise, oh, shit, right. This is Shane Black does Abbott and Costello. This is what it's meant to be. It's meant yeah. to be like a comedy from the 30s or 40s where you have a couple of airmen, airmen saying, I'm just going out back to take a leak. Hey, don't open the door, fella. We'll fly out. Hey, that, 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 you know. <laughs> yeah, it's very similar. Um, it feels like, it does feel like an Edward scene in that in that moment. Yeah, with, doesn't with, it? With the, yeah, it, like you almost feel like the camera boom, sorry, the, the mic boom is going to... Uh, yeah. just come come into the scene, just drifting into the top of the scene at some point. 
Uh, sir, why don't you just use real cows? Cows don't look like cows on film. You gotta use horses. What do you do if you want something that looks like a horse? Well, usually we just tape a bunch of cats together. Uh, and yeah. and I wasn't I wasn't ever quite sure watching it. I don't really care either way. I hasten to add, but I was never quite sure watching it how cheesy the effects were supposed to be. Whether they knew it looked atrocious and therefore just just you know eggs that on further. So Dracula's bats are the obvious example. They just look like bats that are on the end of a fishing line. Yeah, and they're they're going around. But on that on that same breath, you've got. Stan Winston here, the late great Stan Winston, doing yeah, a lot of and, the, a um, lot of the creature effects, and they do look decent in 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 their in their very hammy way. Yeah, so it's Stan Winston working with Richard Edlund from the Star Wars films and Raiders. The pedigree is very I strong. I did not know that. Okay, that's but fantastic. As I was watching it, opening scenes, I said, huh, "Look, that rat's pretty big. It looks like an armadillo more than a rat." And I, <laughs> the, the frustrating thing about this is that. I actually said that, but then it says it on IMDb's trivia page. If I don't explain it like this, which really detracts from the anecdote, people will presume that I just grabbed it from there. But while watching it, I really did see that it was a live armadillo on set pretending to be a rat, which sounds like that Simpsons joke. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's a film that is rough around the edges, but rough and ready in a, a really enjoyable way. In, in yeah. the way that if you see, and this is what we've emphasised, if you were to see that when you were nine, for the next three decades, you would never hear a word said against it. I completely agree with you. As a kid, it would it would have blown my mind. The kids swear a bit. You know, even even the little uh, sister says, come on, guys, don't be chicken shit. And <laughs> yeah. it's, it's that kind of thing that um, I think would have blown my mind as a kid. It's very it's very knowing. Like you say, I, I think that... Um, there's a very firm wink to the to the to the audience at most steps of the way. I think it's interesting that in terms of tone, it kind of goes for a Spielbergian, you know, kid flick, a bit like the Goonies, whatever, yeah. like like you say. But on that same breath, I I truly think that it knows precisely what it's doing, having having very obviously all manner of stereotypes in the '80s kid crew. You know, yeah. the fat kid is called fat kid. They refer yeah. to him as Fat Kid throughout the movie. Yeah. The scary German guy who is their neighbour, who they're scared of throughout the picture until the third act when they realise you know, he can be an ally, is yeah. called Scary German Guy in the yeah. script. That's yeah. his name. Yeah. So I, I, I think it knows what it's doing and uh, whether that's almost a self-defence mechanism because, like you say, it's, they know they're not going to get their ambitions on the screen. Yeah. Uh, it's it's going to be modest, but uh, that's an interesting take. Yeah, no, think, but 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 but, right but, but nevertheless, it's it's there. It's quite funny that at the moment, you know, they tried with the Tom Cruise mummy to relaunch the Universal MonsterVerse and have all of these monster movies interconnect, and they kind of did them as modern day action films. Or it looks like that's what well, that's what they want to do. One look at Monster Squad in all of its eighty-two minute running time. This is this is the Universal wants the team up. I want this is this yeah. is the, this is where it begins and ends for me. I don't want anything else. Uh, Universal didn't obviously have the, the the foresight to put this one out. It's um, this will it's... be the this will be the next decade for Shane Black. Once the Predator takes a bajillion dollars, Joel Silver will work a deal where Shane Black remakes his old films. Lethal Weapon's already got its own television series. Which is astonishing. Twenty years, just about twenty years removed from the last Lethal Weapon film, in lieu of a proper sequel, there's a television series. 
Yeah, the Monster Squad could easily be remade and remade really well. You said it in the 80s and everybody who watched Stranger Things would watch it. Because Stranger Things is, is only a pastiche. I, I quite liked that sh- No, No, it's not fair to say I quite liked that. I liked that show, but it doesn't transcend its origins as a pastiche piece. Yeah. With decent casting. I don't think it has enough original ideas of its own. Uh, going back to the the way that Black plays with conventions and his own self-awareness, you see that in Lethal Weapon as well. I mean, it reached its zenith with Last Action Hero, a, a film in which the protagonist knows all of the rules of Hollywood filmmaking and yeah. action movies and uh, at all times draws attention to them. And Last Action Hero was panned on its release, made money, but that was the first critical backlash against Shane Black. Once again, though, there are several different screenwriters associated with the project. Modern audiences, if they think of self-reflexivity, which has permeated pop culture over the last 20 years, they go back to Wes Craven's Scream by Kevin Williamson. They don't go back to New Nightmare by Wes Craven. They never go back to Last Action Hero. And Mm. it makes... Those are the progenitors for what happened in Scream and then the last 15 years of pop culture. And I wonder why is it they don't go back and how is it that an audience was not sophisticated enough in 93, but by 96 was ready to be told to its face the conventions of its own filmmaking and how those would be either played up to or they would be broached. But in Lethal Weapon, you have the same with Murtar. He seems convinced he's more vulnerable because he's 50, because he has a wife and kids and a house and a boat, as though he's watched films all of his life and thinks... He is the the guy who land, you know lands at Normandy and says, "I can't wait to get back to Betty Sue. Me and her are going to have a wonderful <laughs> life together on the farm in Iowa." I, you know, it, it's exactly yeah. there's a character like that in Band of Brothers, but he survives. You kind of get that feeling with him as well. He keeps he keeps his uh, reserve parachute in order to make a wedding dress for his fiance. They play um, up to it in The Simpsons, don't they? Where they actually have a Lethal Weapon parody that Homer watches in the video rental store. It's a McBain movie. Ooh, McBain. Mm. Hey, McBain, you keep eating them hot links. You're never going to make it to a pension. Come on, live a little, Scoy. No, thank you. Got me a future, partner. I'm two days away from retirement. My daughter's graduating from college. Little Susie's going up. And as soon as we nail Mendoza, my old lady and I are going to sail around the world like we always wanted. We just christened a boat. Oh, yes, sir. Everything's going to be just perfect. Oh, stop talking crazy. No, 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 no. Just do one thing for me. Get Mendoza. Mendoza! You want to rent it, sir? Why? I just saw the best part. <laughs> uh, William O'Leary in Hot Shots. Everyone around here calls me dead meat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's his actual name in it? Wendy, I can fly. <laughs> uh, uh, I miss proper parodies like that. That's going back to our um, listeners. We uh, we discussed at some length Airplane many, many moons ago. We might need to give that a redo now we're slightly more accomplished in our podcasting style. But eventually we'll get... This is what James Kennedy said. He, he, has, he basically said to me, Annie Hall, I'm not... You know, I don't really know it very well. How about Naked Gun? 
<laughs> right, there you go. Yeah. So we have to blitz through the letters uh, B through M until we arrive back at Leslie Nielsen and the Zucker brothers and Abraham, Jim Abrahams. But um, yeah, there's always a self-awareness and there's a self-awareness... Well, in- maybe we can just do it... Do it in November or something when O.J. Simpson is is released. We'll do it. We'll do it as a one-off special. The juice is loose. The juice yeah. is loose. <laughs> Capricorn One and the Naked Gun films. There we go. <laughs> um, but Monster Squad has a, a great self-awareness. I think even on the video copy I've got, it says they've read all the comic books and they've seen all the movies. The kids are very aware of the conventions of the baddies that they're fighting. They know that they should make a silver bullet. There's conversations around that. They need a virgin. They're not quite sure what a virgin is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, that great spit take when he goes up to the cool kid and says, do you know any virgins? <laughs> and perfectly, um, Fred Decker does expertly here. So it, the uh, the edit is from the cool kid spitting out his coke to a splash in a puddle as they walk across a bridge in the countryside. And as with all other Shane Black pictures... There's an astonishing poignancy. So, for instance, in Last Boy Scout, Damon Wayans' monologue about his child, born prematurely and lived only 20 minutes. He talks about how the kid had, he lived long enough to have one dream. And that's how it is that Damon Wayans' character in that film further spirals into drug addiction, reliant upon pain medicine for football injuries and then the uh, essentially the trauma and the depression that follows from losing a child. And there's a heartbreaking moment in The Monster Squad they meet with the creepy German guy and then immediately realise that he's not so creepy after all. And I saw a menorah in the background. Yeah, I noticed and then that, I, yeah. I, they speak with him and they, he says, like, uh, I wonder if you had thought that maybe I was a monster myself. And they say, no, sure, no, no. We know you're not a monster anymore, but you're sure, you sure do know a lot about monsters. And he says, I, perhaps you could say I have some experience dealing with monsters. Then as mm. he closes the door, you see the tattoo on his wrist. It's yeah. heartbreaking to, to inject that reality. And I, I, I didn't find it clash, actually. The juxtaposition was fine to me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that That's um, <laughs> that's the true moment of poignancy in the film. I did for a moment there thought think you were going to go into um, uh, Frankenstein's monster thinking he was ugly. His relationship with the little sister who who obviously sees through his his outer ugliness to his inner beauty. Yeah. There's so much to talk about these films and it's we have this every time that we record. It it can't be a checklist of everything we noticed and everything that's good. It would no. go on for three hours. Uh, and be no fun to listen to. Yeah, there's only so much that we can fit in, but Tom Noonan as Frankenstein's monster gives a very good performance he also appears in shane black's last action hero directed by johnny mctiernan as the ripper beautifully understated performance um and luke you'll remember him from my favorite standalone x-files episode paper hearts yeah wow that's one hell of an episode that's um is that the final samantha episode isn't it isn't that when they finally put the uh fools into standalone verging on mythology you could you can kind of take it or leave it either way i i I can't quite recall but yeah um noonan's character claims to have abducted samantha Mulder, but as the episode proceeds it becomes questionable whether he instead has an uncanny psychic link with Mulder, which enables him to better understand Mulder's fears and manipulate them in order to facilitate his own escape 
And right there is the greatest synopsis I've ever given on the podcast. I hope I, I hope I don't have to cut it out for time. <laughs> no, please don't. That's uh, that I can't was believe fantastic. The rest that of the really time, well I feel I feel like Donald Trump on this thing, just going, folks, believe it's a nobody podcast better than me, folks. Believe me, <laughs> uh, we're gonna we got some great people. We're gonna talk about some terrific, terrific films, folks. Just terrific <laughs> films. I feel like that most of the time, but then occasionally <laughs> a bolt of lightning, uh, as when Homer puts on Henry Kissinger's glasses. <laughs> That's it, and yeah. does the Wizard of Oz bit. That's a right triangle, you idiot. Oh, <laughs> oh dear. I suppose a, a real shame, and we should maybe just mention. I'm going through the stats here. I've got them at my fingertips. Budget of $12 million, made $3.8 million in the US. So obviously not a success, very, very sadly really? at the time. Yeah, yeah, lost money. And um, and wow. has only developed a cult following, you know, in the in the years since. And, you know, you introduced it to, to me, but uh, it, it's interesting to see against that, that, that dire box office, if you bring up Rotten Tomatoes, clearly... Um, you know, has, has developed more of a reputation over time. Uh, so, uh, and, you know, you've got La La Land Records uh, in, in releasing soundtrack albums for it and that kind of thing. And, and La La Land Records, for anyone that doesn't know, is um, a record label that will do mostly, I think, mail-order exclusives of complete uncut soundtrack recordings. And uh, as many listeners will know, you know, if you buy John Williams' Jurassic Park album, for example, it's sequenced you know, at, at, like a rock album where you've got your big, uh, your, your big, uh, well-known singles at the beginning. And then, you know, maybe a slower one after that. And it, you know, it will build to a crescendo for the end of the record. Uh, whereas La La Land Records, very, very good at releasing the unedited complete recordings of, of films. So for Monster Squad to get a La La Land Records, um, release for the soundtrack cl- clearly, uh, says something about the kind of stature it has today i suppose in cult circles they're great uh, i do find their releases very sadly i get very excited about them and then realize that they're cost prohibitive and is is it cost prohibitive because of the extraordinary expense in clearing the licenses they're lavish box sets they're lavish they're well put together they're they're labors of love there's a lot of discs um in in the boxes and yeah maybe there's something about the um about the licenses too but I would also argue that because they're such small circulations, because they're very, very niche items, it's probably low volume, high margin. So, you know, for La La Land to put in that element, that, that level of time, energy, effort, resource, they're going to have to then, you know, char- charge appropriately for it. Um, what more to say about the Monster Squad in terms of its uh, little injections of reality from Shane Black? I liked the sensitive mature conversation between the father and the son about the breakdown of the marriage and i like that that theme isn't put down it does run through the film it's just not foregrounded in a later scene mary ellen trainer has clearly packed her suitcases and left them by the door this is before the denouement in the town square Mm. so it's her intention to leave her husband and probably take the kids with her there's all of that, and again, it's it's the job, isn't it? This is what the job does to us. And Stephen Macht and Stan Shaw have decent amounts of 
genuinely witty banter between them, the kind of witty banter that is difficult to write, that Shane Black mm. can achieve and many others can't. One thing I didn't know about the Monster Squad, Rob Cohen actually was attached as pro- producer, wasn't he? And um, of course, he's yeah. he's gone on, gone on um, over the years to uh, you know t- touching the likes of everything from Dragonheart to I think the third Mummy film, uh, and of course XXX, Triple X, the first Fast and the Furious. I like Dragonheart. I'd like to watch that again. Good for supporting cast. David Thewlis is a particularly enjoyable, snivelling baddie. Julie Christie is in it. Completely And forgotten. Pete Postlethwaite, you know? Who remembers Dragonheart? No one remembers that. Yeah, pff, Game of Thrones, get out, watch Dragonheart. If you want real <laughs> dragons. Sean Connery is a dragon. That's the concept. Sean Connery's a dragon. say this has been a little bit of a shame black black season for me going back into the lethal weapons yes of course it's really the first one that that he uh had a had a real part in but certainly certainly just diving back into that world that he helped set up and uh, monster squad was truly a revelation where was that when i was eight nine years old i'll never know and uh certainly your one of your top films of last year the nice guys has quickly become one of my firm favourites and is now on, on, on rotation here in Norwich at my house very, very regularly. So thanks again for sort of uh, putting Shane Black back on the, back on my map, my cultural map for, for this year. I'm heartened to hear that and uh, I need to get up to Norwich then because I don't yet own it and it hasn't been on Sky either. Good example of a Shane Black picture which contains another Abbott and Costello tribute when Ryan Gosling finds the dead body and uh, can only say like (laughs) it contains my favourite Ryan Gosling moment Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling are on the lift or elevator going up the is it a hotel to to, to find someone the elevator doors open and they just see all of these guys being beaten up. There's a whole fight going on there. It's very bloody, very violent. It's very distressing. They just discreetly close the elevator doors again. They don't say a word to each other. They keep staring forward as we join them back in the elevator. And Ryan Gosling's eye just twitches. <laughs> and then I think I think that I think someone then falls out. You see them in the background, fall, oh, yeah. falling out of the building behind Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling in the in the in the glass fronted elevator. Just that eye twitch. He's in over his head. He's had enough. He can't deal with this. <laughs> He's getting too old for this shit. <laughs> He's really good in that. He's He's comic in a way that's underappreciated at the moment but which is laugh out loud humorous um connects with you in a way that doesn't require any particular intellect it isn't a set of references or any sarcastic nonsense and yeah i get i dig it what about now you get the message now yep are you sure yeah i'm cool all right Give me your left arm. Huh? Your left arm. Give me your left arm. This one. No! Yeah, come on. No! Get me! No! Do 
cut yourself? I'm dealing with an injury. Right, look, when you're talking to your doctor, just tell him you have a spiral fracture of the left radius. No! No! Deep breath. No! If I have an apple. Ah. Um, before we dash off the month in prospect, here on One Sensational Shot, Luke and I will be checking out Catherine Bigelow's Detroit and Soderbergh's Logan Lucky. I'll try to watch Bushwick. I don't know if Luke will find that. I'm very interested in the filmmakers behind it. Nick Dimitri, who did Stakeland and We Are What We Are and Cold in July. Uh, and one last thing is on September 12th at the Prince Charles, John Huston's Fat City is playing, starring Stacey Keach. And Jeff Bridges, I mention it because I, it's quite an obscure film to be playing at a repertory cinema. I'll definitely be checking out Detroit and Logan Lucky. They'll be easy for me to see in the Norwich area. And of course, both yeah. come out on my birthday, August 25th, which uh, yes. is my 30th birthday. So, uh, big day. You're as old as all those Shane Black films of which we've been speaking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they, we, I certainly am. 1987, what a year. Lethal yeah. Weapon and Luke Little Boy. That's our in when we meet him. That's that's what we'll say. You can say, <laughs> I'm as old as you. I'm, all the all the films. I'm like as old as the films you did. <laughs> so I'm. That's how I lo- love you. <laughs> that's almost as good as when I met Gordon Gano of the Violent Femmes and said to him, "I really liked that album you did in 1988. Why didn't you do more albums like that?" Oh, they hate that, don't they? They they can't stand that. It I've just came some... out of my of my mouth like word vomit. I don't know why. I I I could see myself. I had an out of body experience. I could see myself in the gig venue, saying these words to Gordon Gano, one of my heroes. <laughs> and I thought, Luke, stop, stop! What are you saying? <laughs> I did tell him I liked the new record though, and he did sign it. There yeah. we go. <laughs> Thank you very much, listeners. Thank you very much for persevering with us as we've played a kind of hopscotch through the oeuvre of Shane Black's 80s output. And uh, I will hold Luke to watching all four lethal weapons when we get to L in his A to Z, which I <laughs> promise you will be returning uh, in the Electronic Labyrinth in due course. We just wanted to look at some other stuff for a bit and um, there was limited enthusiasm for a couple of the pictures. So we, we needed to refresh our palette with some dynamite 80s glory before we moved on to some more sober material like uh, well funnily enough not just being there but as good as it gets and luke do you know who happens to cameo in as good as it gets you're not gonna believe it and neither will the listeners shane mm, black really shane black's in it in a as a coffee shop manager i knew it would be something like that because as good as it gets is a film about the main characters and then lots of people that work in the service industry yeah 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 (laughs) because they just happen to be in lots of restaurants and places like that but yeah (laughs) please do go to itunes and review us uh we're still a fledgling show and um we need we really would like to get some some reviews to help us out help people discover us through itunes through through all the search engines all the twitters and on that note you can uh, find us at uh one sensational on twitter and we're also uh, on Facebook. If you search One Sensational Shot, that's where you'll find us. You can comment and get back to us there. 
And beyond that, onesensationalshot.com. That's where we call home. And you can find out more about the podcast. Go back, listen to previous episodes. Do whatever it is that you need to do on that website. But first and foremost, do leave us a review. We would love to hear from you in the future. And we're always keen to read out listener feedback on air. As you move back through iTunes, um, do hold us to account for things that we've said and for the reviews we've given. And keep hitting us back with... Uh, evaluation of our content and I've got this opinion about this we love to revisit the films we've talked about and we really enjoy regenerating the debate and kicking off just one question from you could give us an hour's material and that means we don't have to revise so please <laughs> I'll definitely rewatch all the lethal weapons again all four so there we go. there's no danger of that not happening anyway thanks very much indeed for listening guys this has been one sensational shot Yeah, the monster squad gonna jam tonight. Monster squad.